Namaste and good evening to all of you. Tonight, I am very happy to continue together with you the teachings of Jesus. We are drawing uh, close to the final sequences, to the final teachings in the Gospel of Luke. And um, last time, in the last session, we spoke about these uh, teachings with... Uh, Zacchaeus, the tax collector, whom Jesus addressed by the name, either in a miraculous way or simply because he had an acquaintance with him from before. And um, then Jesus giving the teachings about the... He ends by saying, the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. And he refers, it's uh, very close to the parable of the prodigal son. In the parable of the prodigal son, there are a few other things which are emphasized. But uh, it's a similar teaching. And with the verse at number 11, in the same chapter number 19, we continue with another parable. It says, while they were listening to this, so it's related to the previous event. Uh, Jesus told to Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to this house, and all that he praised him for his repentance, for his good deeds. He gave the teachings that he as Jesus was very interested in lost souls. And then it says, while they were listening to this. So it's in the same context, it's in the same day, in the same place. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable. It doesn't tell, like, okay, what does this parable have got to do with Zacchaeus, with the case of Zacchaeus? It has, and it hasn't. We have to believe that if Jesus was talking sometimes for hours with people, there would have been different subjects. We don't know if there has been a different question to change the subject or how exactly things came to be. What we can say is that in the same circumstances, probably in the house of Zacchaeus himself, Jesus gave the following parable, which is a classic and it teaches us very much. He went on to tell them a parable. Because he was near Jerusalem. Remember this was happening in Jericho. Zacchaeus was a tax collector from Jericho. Jericho is about 40 to 60 kilometers away from uh, Jerusalem. And therefore... Um, there was still a while to go, but he was on his way to the Passover to Jerusalem. And because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. This is the same nonsense that we encounter today with all these new age people. There will be a change of paradigm. I, I heard it as called the, scientifically the paradigm change. There will be, I don't know, uh, 
you know, people know that there is an end of the cosmic cycles and they want to soften it down in a very sweet and ridiculous way. Um, there will come an energy from the constellation of the Pleiades or whatever galactic clusters are in that constellation and they are going to change humanity. This contradicts completely the law of resonance. It contradicts completely the laws of karma. This contradicts completely the laws of evolution of the soul. Like right now, we live in an ugly place. We live in a place when conspiracies are happening about people's health and so many lies and pathetic things are being vehiculated. So much weird stuff is there and human beings react like greedy animals. That means they, whenever it's convenient for them, they do something. Whenever it's not convenient for them, they just avoid, they lie, they cheat, they do whatever. You know, like people react in very inferior ways. Very few people in the last two years have reacted in very noble ways, in very vertical ways, in very uh, superior ways. No, not at all or almost not at all. No? And therefore, we are living in a trough. We are living in the mud. People are behaving at the moral and ethical level of mud. And then there will come an energy from the Pleiades, and we are all going to move into the Golden Age. But the people who are at this level the great esotericist René Guénon, he called the people who live in Kali Yuga, he called them the pygmies of Kali Yuga, by a politically incorrect comparison to the pygmies of Africa, because the pygmies of Africa were considered to be very small, tiny, and tiny was metaphorical, like small at, in their soul, but also because the references to Satya Yuga said that people from Satya Yuga might have been five meters tall and they were living up to a thousand years of lifespan. So pygmies means small people, small lifespan, small stature, and of course a small soul, a small spirit into that. So I sometimes am offending this inferior humanity by calling them baboons, by calling them orangutans, you know, or something. Um, René Guénon, being a French uh, intellectual and with a certain class to him, he preferred to use a more urbane uh, <laughs> metaphor, a more advanced metaphor, which he called the pygmies of Kali Yuga. We are surrounded by the pygmies of Kali Yuga. Please remember the pygmies of Kali Yuga 2,000 years ago when the Greek civilization was very advanced in philosophy, they condemned to death and they basically they assassinated Socrates. Socrates, who was one of the superior people in town, Socrates was assassinated 
because he spoke the truth, because he told the truth. So in Athens, 2,000 and a few hundred years ago, there were 99% baboons, which Renegenon again calls the pygmies of Kali Yuga. No offense to the pygmy nation of Africa. It was not intended. It was just a comparison based simply on superficial anthropological knowledge that the pygmies were a tribe of people who were very short in stature. And, you know, so, and it was used as a metaphor to mean little people, but not with the intent of offending the pygmies themselves. The pygmies of Kali Yuga, the baboons of Kali Yuga, were predominant. And Socrates, who was one of the superior people there, he was just condemned to death in an unlawful way, in a ridiculous way, and he was assassinated. So, uh, the pygmies of Kali Yuga think that they can continue being pygmies and they will somehow be hit by some wonderful radiation coming from the Pleiades, and suddenly they will become like Plato and Socrates and like Confucius and uh, whatever, Dogen or somebody like that. They will suddenly become wise, detached, spiritual, full of love and all that stuff. How? Because then that contradicts completely the laws of the evolution of the soul. If the soul behaves like a baboon, it is because it is a baboon. How is it going to become classy, refined, polished, advanced, like Socrates, just because some energy is coming from some faraway constellation? Like, this is the dream of the impotence, of the spiritual impotence, who say, we are not doing anything, we are not fasting, we are not going vegetarian, we are not afraid refraining from alcoholic drinks, we are not refraining from God knows what other things, we don't control our sexual energy, we do not uphold any moral and ethical discipline, and the wonderful energy is going to come from the Pleiades, and we are going to be made holy. Like, you climb the mountain without efforts. No, this is the dream of all the spiritual impotence people. To live a life of debauchery and spiritual negligence and in the end of the process to be hit by some energy from the whatever, from the Orion's belt and then you will become also spiritual. I live like an animal until the age of 60 or 70 and when I'm close to die and I haven't got anything to lose and I can't even go out in town to party anymore or to take too much drugs, then the Orion's belt is coming into the game and I also become like Francis of Assisi or like Milarepa. This is madness. This is madness to think that spontaneously you will get evolved and qualify to live in Satya Yuga when all your life you've been spiritually indifferent and you lived in a pig's trough. It's totally impossible. Now, if that would happen, all the spiritual teachings and all the spiritual teachers of this planet, from the last 3,000 years or you name it, they would all of them have to pack and go away in a desert and hide in shame and they will be proven to have been wrong. No, because this contradicts 
exactly the essence of the whole spirituality. Exactly like this in the time of Jesus, Jesus was using a very colorful language because this is how the Jewish mysticism was with a covenant with God and you cut the foreskin of your dick and God is friendly with you and you behave kosher and you behave kadosh and then you have 831 regulations and God has made you the chosen one. It was like a very peculiar environment. The yoga environment is about resonance, chakras, rising on the planet of consciousness, doing sadhana, doing spiritual practice. It's much more pragmatic and clear and so on. The Jewish mysticism was using a very colorful set of metaphors to define the relationship between people and God and uh, evolution and all that. And therefore, Jesus, when he had to come to to give the continuation of the message, the continuation from Abraham and Moses and Elijah and all the big prophets, finishing with John the Baptist as the last of them, then Jesus preached all the time, the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is coming. But this is a metaphor which is, it was fit in that environment, but it lacks technical accuracy because, of course, it's true, but it doesn't explain mechanisms or things which are happening. Jesus is just basically saying, now God is starting the final part of Kali Yuga. I have been sent to make a new covenant, to change the covenant, and now the final part will start. And there is a chance for many of you that if you shake hands with me, Jesus, you are going to have a change of heart and a change of life and a change of karma, dharma, and a lot of other good things. And therefore, uh, the kingdom of heaven is opening its door. There would be, there is an opportunity coming. Now, and that opportunity is with me. Remember, there was, he was crucified with a thief, and the thief said, you know, I am a miserable thief, and I deserve my punishment, but if you can take me with you. And Jesus, this guy was a thief. He was, you know, and he admitted he was a thief. And Jesus said, because you are so clean in your heart, today you shall be with me in paradise. Today, like he he saved the thief just like that. Jesus said, it's not for one thief on the cross. It's for millions and millions. But you have to do what this thief has said. You have to acknowledge me and you have to come with me. You have to follow me now. And in the coming 2,000 years. You have to catch this train. Of course you're going to say, but did Svatmarama, the man or Geranda, who wrote Geranda, did they know? Maybe they knew, maybe they didn't know. Knowledge about Jesus, I think he didn't go to Tibet until the 15th century or 14th century. So they didn't know about Jesus at the time of Milarepa in the 12th century. It doesn't mean that they could not reach salvation or that they, there were parallel methods, there were parallel ways of climbing the mountain. Jesus just gave this final opening and it's valid in the environment of Israel of those days and then from Israel it moved to the Greece, to the Roman Empire, to a lot of other countries in the Western Hemisphere. No, because this uh, snowball was launched together with Jesus and his apostles. 
And because he used this parable that the kingdom of God is coming, then people were saying, okay, so the kingdom of God is coming when? Uh, now Jesus is going to Jerusalem, there will be the Passover, maybe God will appear himself, and we are all going to be enlightened and be in the kingdom of God, or something like this. And Jesus then had to tell them, ho, 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 you little pygmies, you know, well, maybe he didn't call them baboons, as I impolitely do, but maybe he called them, hey, little fellows, you know, it's like, not so fast, you know, it's not like, do not oversimplify my words, because for me, Jesus, everything is simple. If that thief tells me, take me with you, I told him, today you will be with me in paradise. That's very simple, it looks very simple, it sounds very simple. For me, as Jesus, things are simple, but the process itself it's not that the kingdom of God is just coming. So, people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. But of course it's not, because it depends to whom. To whom? Why would the kingdom of God appear to baboons? Because the baboons cannot make anything out of it. Even if they are in the middle of paradise, they can't realize what's happening and use it. So he said, he made a very lengthy parable which showed exactly the need to change, to move, to move, to transform. This power of Kali, move, 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 transform. There is never stagnation or if there is stagnation, you go to hell, you go back, you go down. He says, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. He was about to be appointed king. King is a metaphor which he uses often for God, like God is the king, or at least for a super enlightened being or something, like Jesus is potentially a king also. So, a man of noble birth, which bodes well, and not because of the noble birth, but he's like talking about somebody special and somebody having power went to a distant country. Going to a distant country is a beautiful metaphor because it means the other people didn't know anything. In those days, if you went to a distant country, imagine you traveled from Israel to Japan. You'd probably never come back. Nobody would know anything about you and the chance of you returning was far, far uh, diminished. So he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minas. This is the coin I was talking about last time. Today, if you'd be in Israel, you'd call them shekels. If you would be in America, you'd call them dollars. It doesn't matter if they are $10 or pounds or shekels. Or In those days, apparently, the language of the Bible mentions them as minas. It's a financial unit, like a dollar or like a shekel, which is called mina. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. See, here it differs from the same parable given in other Gospels. Because in other Gospels, it doesn't sound like the king-to-be, the noble man, God, the master. It doesn't sound like he gave clear indications. He said, look, I'm giving you some money. Do your thing. Live your life. No, but here... He says very clearly, he says, 
put this money to work until I come back. No? Like the, the, the parable of these 10 minas, I'm telling you from the very beginning, it's a parable about your life. This 10 minas is like the ojas which God gave to you when you were born. And then he says, put these ojas to work. Like live a life. Act. These minas are whatever. Maybe some of you say, I was born very intelligent. Good for you. That's one of those ten minas. And I also have, uh, I don't know, excellent sexuality. Good. That's the second one of those minas. You have been given ten minas, ten shekels, ten dollars, ten things, metaphorically speaking. And we can compare it again very much with the ojas that you receive in the beginning of life. It's a starting capital. And it is like Napoleon said. Every one of my soldiers has the baton of being a marshal in his backpack. Like just be heroic, be a genius, affirm yourself in battle and, in, and you will become a marshal in no time. No, like he said, if I see that you are good, I will promote you immediately. No, if I see that you are just a lazy soldier who tries to stay down and do as little as possible just to get your payday, no, and for the rest try to expose yourself as little as possible, you will not become a lieutenant, a captain, a colonel, and then a general or a marshal. No? So it was the same thing. Put it to work. So here God, the king, gives a clear indication. Like you have to live a life that's not supposed to be for nothing. It's not just supposed to be an accident. Oops! I created you and I launched you on planet Earth. Do whatever you do. You know? Like the ridiculous answer when people say, well, what do you want to do? I just want to be happy. That's why God put you here. Of course, happiness is part of the thing, but it's not the imbecile happiness of the egoistic person who gets happy because now they made some money and now they had some sex. No, it's put it to work. It's a certain thing. There is a purpose. That's exactly what people fail to see today, that there is a purpose to life. Life is not without purpose. If you are alive now, on this planet, God has put you on this planet. Even if not directly, but he created an automatic mechanism by which people fuck and they make children and so on. That's without relevance. The fact that you are here is that God put you here. Directly or indirectly. Take it whichever way you want. And if God put you here, then he did it with a purpose. And that purpose is summed up in these words, in this metaphor. Put this money to work until I come back. It's actually until you come back. It's not God is coming back because God is here all the time. No? But he comes back to you subjectively when you die. No? So basically, remember that this is a very important issue. To live a life and to think it has no meaning. Or to think that life 
has a new age bullshit watered down meaning. Oh, we are here because we are here. You know, go drown yourself somewhere. You know, you're an idiot if you think like that. You know, we are here because you have to put to work the minas. A task is given to you. Each life has a task. But his subject hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. Like, we don't want this God to be our God. We don't want Jesus to be our king. Because if they hated the king, or the potential king, they could not have been spiritual. So Jesus says in the subtext that these people were demonic. They didn't really go with the Dharma. They were not really aligned with it. They were exactly like most people are. I want to do my whim and do whatever I want. And then when I die, I want to have no accountability for the shit which I have done. Which is a a very fake hope. He was made king, however, because he was who he was. And returned home. Then he said, now the king has come back. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. Remember, God is not coming back because he's here all the time. We don't see God as we live in the physical body. 99.9% of the people are not aware of the fact that there is a cosmic consciousness. And therefore, for them, God stops existing. And even if they profess that they are Christian or Muslim or Hindu or whatever they are, in actual life, they do whatever they want whenever they want and they do not constrain themselves by the indications of their God. Either fulfilling the Quran or the Bible or whichever other text they are supposed to follow. The first one came and said, Sir, Your Mina has earned 10 more. This is, you would say, you would compare it to business. In a certain way, even business is a pale reflection of this principle. That if you don't grow, you die. The business which does not grow and renew itself, and it dies. It's doomed to die. It's a law which is very, very well known in the world of business as well. It is like what we teach in the millionaire yoga, in the yoga of perfect accomplishment or whatever it is being called these days. No, That Wallace, Wattles and others say there is a constant growth. It is the meaning of life that life wants to grow, that it has to grow. The God himself, when he launched Adam and Eve in the world, he said, grow and multiply. Today they are trying to kill as many people as possible, because according to the smart people, we are too many. We shouldn't be 8 billion people, but that contradicts the divine law. Of course, the divine law cannot be interpreted materialistically and mechanically, like a simple multiplication of the numbers of people. 
It's a multiplication of the qualities of people. The fact that now there are 8 billion souls incarnated on earth and probably 30 billion people in the limbos and in the astral worlds in shuffling in these cycles of birth and death, that's simply because those souls exist. There exist tens of billions or hundreds of billions of souls which deserve to be incarnated and which are waiting for their turn. And therefore there is nothing to be decided by the Davos meetings or by the Bilderberg groups or by such think tanks and other things. You know, They only think that they can decide on top of what Mother Nature slash the Shiva consciousness decides about this planet. Again, you would realize that God is more intelligent than all the people on this planet on earth put together and multiplied by a gazillion times. And therefore God understands very well the problem of overpopulation and other such uh, related issues. No? And therefore there are solutions, there are ways, but definitely not this kind of materialistic ways. You know, we don't like the Jews, then let's put them in a concentration camp and kill them all, get rid of the Jews. You know, that's not the way it works with the cosmic conscience. That's why even if Hitler tried that, he did not succeed. He could not succeed. It's not possible to succeed. Ah, that the dodo bird from Madagascar or wherever, it disappeared. Well, it disappeared because the cosmic consciousness had it on the blacklist for whichever reason which we don't understand. No, But it's not like we destroyed it or we made it. Then 65 million years ago, a comet hit the earth or whatever it is. It supposes the one which hit in the Gulf of Mexico and created that big hole in the Gulf of Mexico and then the dinosaurs disappeared. No, But the dinosaurs had to disappear. No, There is a conscious design. There is a conscious creator which takes step into the things of mankind. So, anyway, even when God said grow and multiply, he did not mean overpopulate the earth. If the humanity would be such an amazing creation, then of course they could overpopulate the earth and then overpopulate and go to Mars, go to Venus, go to other solar systems, you know, then it would be okay to keep on growing and multiplying. But that's not what was involved in the early Bible. Yeah? Still, there is a thing that the Mina has to multiply. And even in business, that's true, although business is not the essence of life. Business is just a reflection. When you read the E-Myth Revisited, I forgot right now the author, a guy who tries to make a parallel between spirituality and enterprise, the enterprise in business, he says it very clearly. A business is just a reflection of the inner world of a person. That's why he claims that people who have created very successful businesses no, you may detest Warren Buffett or uh, Bill Gates or the likes of them, but he claims these people are special in a way. In a way. There is something special because nothing comes out of nothing. No, To have the karma, to have so much money, 
as the owner of Amazon or God knows which one of them, you can hate them and behave in a Marxistic, envious way, like we are the proletarian, we are the blue collar, we are the working class, and this fucking capitalist has put under his belt more tens of billions of dollars than anybody knows, and it's very unfair. It's not unfair, says the E-Myth Revisited. It's a reflection, it's a karma, it's a resonance, it's a... No, so even there, no, to make things progress in a way, no, it's, it's a talent on some frequency. It doesn't mean that those people are necessarily spiritual. And sometimes those people, they go satanic. There are many super rich people who belong to a satanic evil cult that is doing things on this planet. No, it doesn't mean necessarily for God, but it means a resonance, a power, an energy. And he says, sir, your Mina has earned 10 more. I don't know how everybody else was hating this guy, but this servant, he was mindful and he knew. What if he's coming back? No, like as we would say now, don't fuck with God. You know, you don't see God. You don't know. He's playing a policy of non-intervention and it makes you believe that God is impotent or does not exist. And then when you discover the truth, it's too late to take a final decision. No? You should take the decision before as if, as if you knew. Because people like Jesus, they told you very clearly. This is not a subject to be trifled with. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Like God is pleased, was pleased. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. So this guy became a governor. He became a count, whatever, uh, a squire. You know, he became one of the trusted of the king because the king tried him with small things and this man demonstrated he can move, he can evolve, he can multiply the mina. Remember, the money is a symbol. Don't take it only financially. There may be some analogy financially. Because everything fits with everything. As above, so below. Things do fit by the law of correspondence. But it doesn't mean that it is the same thing. Jesus is talking about the spiritual evolution and that manifests as well in other ways. The same came, the second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. This one was less gifted, he was given the same capital, but at least he tried. His master answered, you take charge of five cities. Proportional. No? Like now the pattern is clear. Then another servant came and said, sir, here is your mina. I have kept it and laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. Like, what an image about God. Remember, we're talking potential about God. It's the reaction of a man towards God. He says to God, I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. So he says, you know, you are a, a mafia. You are a mafioso. You know, I'm afraid of you. You are a tough guy. 
you take out what you did not put in. No? What an image that God is a profiteer. God is a thief. God is an abuser. You take out what you don't put in. You know, every time when people die, they curse at God and they are angry and they argue because they feel cheated. Like, who gave it to you to start with? Yeah, but exactly when I was about to build the Eiffel Tower, exactly when I was about to be really rich, exactly when I was about to become a great-grandfather, exactly about the time when I was going to make my first million, then I had to die. No, people, because of their attachment, they hate God, they fear God, and it's like God is taking what He didn't put in. But actually everything has been put in by God. No? It's really ridiculous how people twist it, no? that eventually God is the culprit. No, I, if God wouldn't have killed me, oh my God, what wonderful things I would have done. It's nonsense. It's nonsense. It's just the ego and ignorance talking. No? You, are, you take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. Like you sowed wheat and God is reaping the wheat. You know, God took my son. I had a child and God took him. What a bastard. But that child was not yours. It belonged to God. No, so you cannot accuse God that he took your child because it's not yours. It was not yours to start with. God reaps what he did not sow. I, I put the seed there. It was my son. No, it wasn't. It's just your ego and attachment talking. So this man reflects in a beautiful way exactly the reaction of the ignorant man. People are afraid of Kali. People are afraid of death. People are afraid of God. People hate all this approach to infinity because the infinity scares the hell out of them and it provokes their egos. And thus, it's exactly, it illustrates beautifully without Jesus having to explain more, no, that this man says, uh, well, you know, I was afraid of you. At least I didn't steal from you. Here is your money back and leave me alone. But this is like a person who says, God, I don't want to play any game with you. I was afraid you gave me the money. I said, what the heck? I cannot say no to his face. I put them in a piece of cloth. Then you came back. I'm giving back to you. Like there is no game. There is no ping pong between you and I. And God wants the ping pong. You are made for this ping pong. If you refuse the ping pong, you are useless. You are going into the fire like a useless piece of wood or something. No, you are completely useless to the divine consciousness. Why then didn't you put my money on deposit? So that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest. Like even if you put it in a bank, they will give, have given you 11 after one year. There would have been a 10% pathetic. In the, at least I would have seen that you play the game of growing. Of growing. <laughs> Again, that title... That text written by Wallace Wattles, which we use in the Millionaire Workshop, is brilliant. Because he shows very clearly that by studying nature, 
you see that nature is meant to multiply. I was watching a video with people cropping rice the other day. I don't think it was in a movie. I think it was in a documentary or in some news, you know. And I was thinking, what would you do if the crops would not multiply? If you put a potato and you reap a potato. If you put a carrot and you reap a carrot. Then life could simply not exist. Life exists because out of a pineapple, you get ten pineapples. That out of a grain of rice, you get a hundred grains of rice. That's the only thing which makes life continue. No, and we can eat and have agriculture and all that. Because otherwise, it wouldn't work. No, so it's a divine law. And Wallace Wattles was a good ob- ob- observer of the universe. Because he simply said... There's nothing wrong with you growing up in your money, in your accomplishment, in your things, you know, because that's the law of nature. You have to grow up. So, the the king is uh, compassionate in a way. He understands the fear of this man and he says, why then didn't you put my money on deposit? So that when I came back, I would have collected it with interest. A little, a little bit, but some to see a move forward. A little bit of movement forward. Then he said to those standing by, Take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Not to the one who has five. To the one who has ten. Like that's the champion. And God loved this champion. No? And he says, take it away from this guy. Like this guy is damaged goods. Is the grain, it's the rice which yields no rice. What am I going to do with it? With him? Nothing. It's not good. The spirits which I want to live on this planet Earth, they have to multiply. They have to grow. They have to push forward. That's the law of life. Sir, they said, he already has ten. Like this guy, you know, is like the envy. Give it to Warren Buffett. But hey, he's rich already. No? That's what people don't understand. People say, take from Warren Buffett and give to the poor. This is the fallacy of Marxism. Marxism is just a devilish philosophy. And now most of the North American and European countries are living in what is clearly defined politically. It's like lots of political commentators have said this in a hundred ways, that we are now, whatever is happening with this globalism and everything, is nothing else but a form of neo-Marxism. Although Marxism in Eastern Europe has produced the tragedies which you may have heard about or not, I lived there and I know them firsthand, They raised again the statue of Karl Marx in Ghent, in Belgium, you know, where he was born. Something like this. Like, Karl Marx is the hero now. And Europe, the European Union, North America, in spite of all the bullshit which they said when they were fighting against communism 50 years ago, now they show their true colors. Their true colors is that the new society of the future is supposed to be a neo-Marxistic society. A sort of because that's what social justice and is supposed to be. And it's not. 
You don't take from the one that has the ten minas and give and say, ah, this one, he is an incapable, you know. Take from the ones that have and give him some. Even out the balances. Not for Jesus. For Jesus it goes the other way around, which is scandalous for this Marxist type of justice. He says, sir, he already has ten. Like, why should we take from the, okay, this guy didn't manage. To perform. But now you want to take everything. And on top of it you want to give it to the one who already has much. He replied. I tell to you. I tell you. That to everyone who has. More will be given. And as for the one who has nothing. Even what he has. Will be taken away. That's the sad truth of what would happen in the end of Kali Yuga. The baboons will go away butt naked and the few people who have have some spirituality, they will receive hundredfold gifts. If I compare myself to Milarepa, I do not absolutely deserve the spiritual gifts which I have received in my life. But I have received those spiritual gifts in a way of which I'm not worthy. I do not consider myself worthy if I think in a Marxistic way. Like I didn't work for it as much as Milarepa. Not even a tenth of what Milarepa has worked. No, But I deserve it because the one who has even a little bit shall be given more. The differences are increased not diminished. God doesn't like uniformity and equality. God says in Kali Yuga there were a hundred people who kept up the spirit. Those hundred, they go to the kingdom of heaven. The others, they get nothing. They get back to zero and they start class again next time. They try again next time. Exactly as when you dump in a school year, and then you have to do that school year again. And you say, but you know, like repeating class or whatever it's called, you know. And you say, but I have done level 15 already. Yeah. But because you did not graduate, you have to do it again. But I have done the third grade already. And it was only in mathematics that I got a very bad remark. Yeah. Because you did not graduate, you have to do it all again. No? So those who have little, They lose everything. It sounds very unfair. But it's not because God has to promote something. If you have a few cells that became a bud or a flower, then the tree is pushing a lot for that flower to be a flower, to bloom, to make seeds, to give fruits, to do everything. The tree cannot become all of it flowers. The tree will have a thousand fruits. A cherry tree will produce a thousand cherries. No? But the whole tree is working for those one thousand cherries. And those one thousand cherries are privileged. They get more precisely because they have become cherries. The tree is not paying too much attention to the bark, to the trunk, only for survival mode. Enough so that the tree will not break and fall apart. Everything is put in the cherry flowers and in the cherry fruits. So this is the thing for enlightenment. 
It is that you become proeminent. Remember what I told you. You have to nag God like a mosquito. What I told you in the Kashmiri Shaivas about subjective and objective. People think that God is objective. And he's not. God is subjective. So you have to behave in a different way. You make ten minas, and God says, I don't care about the losers, I like you. you know. And then you get another ten minas. And then suddenly you are a Buddha, and you say, how did I do it? It was just the circumstances. Nobody else wanted to make ten minas for God. You did. Therefore, suddenly you are the champion. You became a flower, you became a cherry, an apple, a fruit, or whatever, you know, and you say, when did I deserve that? You didn't. But there was nobody better than you. You were the best given the circumstances. No? So it's a relative thing in this way. God is exerting subjectivity, looking at the world as it is, with relativity. I'm telling you again, the law of karma is objective, but God is not. You have to learn to deal in a different way with the divine consciousness. And he says, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. And as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. This is no social justice. Realize. We are not talking about social justice. We are talking about other values. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Now this was the last category. No, This guy, he didn't make his money. Okay, he lost everything. But then there was another category, the people who didn't want him king. Okay. Those are the Satanists. Those are the people who go against God. And for those, there is a fourth deal, which is worse. No? Like the king is acting. Remember, this is Jesus who gives this as a parable. That he simply said, these people hated me, now kill them. No? The Jewish God is known in history through the prophets to have been very tough in certain situations, you know, like if you hate God or something, then it's okay for God to wipe you out. No, there is no mercy for the idiots. After Jesus had said this, so this is a modified rendering of the parable of the talents here, they are called minas, in which I hope you meditate seriously on what Jesus said here. By the way, I had a watch, a table clock. It's somewhere here. Can you please put it here for me? I want to evaluate my timing. Thank you very much. So this was the parable of the ten minas which has to make you think because God has given you some gifts and actually the more gifts you have received, the more you have to give back. The more the multiplication factor has to be. 
No? Like 10% from 10 minas is 1, and 10% from 100 minas is 10. Therefore, if you receive the 100, you have to give back 10. And if you receive 10, then it's okay to give back 1. You saw that God said, I would have been happy if at least you put it in a bank and got some interest on it. I want to see some growth. I want to see some multiplication. No? It's exactly like you are planting seeds in a pot. No? You plant seeds in uh, 20 pots, and then after one month you look, and five of them sprouted, and 15 of them did not. Then what do you do with the 15 pots that did not sprout? You consider them useless, and you plant other seeds in those pots. No? Only the seeds that sprouted, they are the ones which give you satisfaction. So you have to sprout in the world of God. You have to grow. There is no way to stay. Remember, Jesus said it and I. He said, he who is not with me is against me. People say, I'm not evolving, I'm not going back. That's not true. If you are not evolving, you are going back. Even in business, they say this fundamental law. A company which is not progressing is on its way to destruction. Or even if you can't see it clearly. No? It ha- there has to be a progress. There has to be something new, something better, something greater. And therefore this is a very disturbing parable. Because it simply says that there is no time for rest. Don't take it absurdly. Because everybody has the time to do some work. And then, hey, I took a holiday and for one month I just rested. Sure, on short periods of time you can. And it's even required to rest from time to time. But all in all, there has to be some progress. This is very important to remember. Whoever, whatever you are, a yoga teacher, a spiritual practitioner, or whatever, a farmer, or whatever, there has to be progress. You have to push further, further, further. Otherwise, it's not good. After Jesus had said this, so now we change register, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. So now we are moving into the final stage. As you may know, Jerusalem was the last week. We are going basically to the last week of Jesus' life on earth. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, who are you, why are you untying it? Tell him the Lord needs it. So here, Jesus behaves in an almost absurd way. He's going, he's coming to Jerusalem from the east because Jericho is 40 or whatever, 60 kilometers on the east. There are some places well known on the road from Jericho to uh, Jerusalem. There is a famous place which was uh, the well of one of the old prophets from the Bible. I forgot whose well 
and so on. And there Jesus at some point had met with a Samaritan woman. There are some stories. It's a place which is like halfway between Jericho and uh, Jerusalem along the road. And when Jesus is coming there and at the hill called the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is very significant because today it's in the eastern Jerusalem. And it's indeed a hill which goes even higher than the old city of Jerusalem. You can look from it down to the old city. And that's the place where 40 days later Jesus went up to heaven. Dematerialized his body and went up to heaven. So it's a very significant place and it's in the east. So Jesus was coming somehow over this Mount of Olives from Jericho. We don't know exactly which the road was in those days. We presume it was very much like the roads which have been preserved today, not in quality, in the meaning, in the trajectory of the road. And when he reached to about 5-10 kilometers from Jerusalem, then he did a weird thing. This weird thing you can see, now he acts as God. Now he acts in full power, you know, like now suddenly he demonstrates because it's never said in the Bible that this was a fabrication and actually there is a plot and he had a plan and that John or Peter or somebody had prepared, had gone ahead and had prepared for him a horse Apparently we know that this horse was a donkey or a mule or something. It was not because it is described here as a colt. And for those of you who don't know enough English, the colt is the child of the horse, is the baby of the horse, a young horse. But it was not of a horse. Yeah, It was of a donkey or of this animal, which is the mixture between the horse and the donkey, a mule or whatever you would call it. And it was the colt of that But it's not said here in the text. And like, there are only two possibilities. Either somebody had planned to it and he said, Jesus, send him a message, you know, and send, uh, listen, when you come to Jerusalem, we prepared the cult for you in the village of Bethany or on the Mount of Olives or whatever. And uh, you'll find it from there so that you enter in with more decorum in Jerusalem. Either it was a conspiracy like that or then how did Jesus know? Because he says, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Like, how did he know that? Did he say, Peter, go in the village there and prepare and make sure you ask people that it should be a colt which is young enough. Nobody had been riding on it. Was he sure that it was found? Did he receive a feedback message? Hey, master, we found such a cult as you have asked for and so on. Because there are only two possibilities. Either this thing is staged or if this thing is not staged, then Jesus is omniscient. He just knows. He looks upon the world like God. He simply knows. He just he has a full-on Ajna Chakra And he just goes and tells them, go to that village that is there, this and this, a colt, a donkey, a young donkey, which no one has ever ridden. That's also very meaningful, because if you remember, this thing that there is something which is not touched, like the virginity for women and for young men, 
like a food which has been cooked and then the first part of the food is given like the Hare Krishna people do. They cook food. Excellent, good, tasty food for Krishna, for everybody. And then they even have restaurants and they serve that food. But before they serve it, they take a big portion and they put it in front of the statue of Krishna. And then the food can be eaten. Because the food, then it becomes leftovers from Krishna. Krishna ate first, because he is the king, he is God, and then the people can be given the leftovers. It's a sort of a putting God on a pedestal. Jesus is going to ride a mount, horse, donkey, mule, whatever, which had never been ridden by anybody. No, it's like it's virgin. That's it's the best for the king. For the king is the first spoon of the pot. All the rest is leftovers, but the king is special. So, but Jesus asks for it himself. He knows. It's like there is a synchronicity. It's like this thing was there since the beginning of the universe prepared for him. He says, go, you find the colt. What if they didn't find one? Can you ask? Can you answer such a stupid question? You know? which no one has ever ridden, virgin. Untie it and bring it here. Like, meet me. If anyone asks you, he even predicted, you know, why we don't know if it happened or not, but like, the thing was, if anyone asks you, why are you untying him? Like, it was somebody's donkey, right? Even if it was not ridden before. It was somebody's property. It couldn't have just popped up out of the blue there. No? Then you tell him, the Lord needs it. Like if you say, God needs this horse. Okay. You know, like nobody would say no unless they are nuts. You know? But then people will say, how do you know that the Lord needs it? You know? Somebody came, you know, some these people were sent. They came like in the name of a crazy prophet. And they said, we're sent to take your donkey because the Lord needs it. You know? Then you would say, no, I don't want to give it to the Lord. And then you are fucked. Or you simply say, sure, if like, how could the Lord have known, first of all? Here, Jesus is acting in a very imperative way. He, he is showing a little bit of who he truly is, of what the power which is vested in him is. No, like the whole universe is listening to him if he wants to. If they, of course, they will crucify him, but that's because it's Kali Yuga, and the world is upside down and it is ruled by the demons. No? But otherwise, this is what's supposed to happen. No? So tell them. If anybody asks you why you do this, tell them the Lord needs it. The Lord has other. He's the Lord. He kind of identifies beautifully. Those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as he had told them. So no, it, it, we are told and it was not staged. We are told the people went and they just believed in what Jesus said and they said, oh, whoops, there is the cult. As they were untying the cult, its owners asked them, what are you, why are you untying the cult? They replied, the Lord needs it. Exactly like Tilopa who sent his disciple Naropa to kidnap a bride from a bridal party and he said Tilopa wants to fuck her. You know, like, it doesn't matter. You guys don't matter. 
you know, but we are the owners of the world. It doesn't matter. When the Lord is coming, the Lord takes prevalence. As you can see, it's not very like like it's time to go to, to up the ante, you know, it's it's time to go to the big league. Now now something is shining through. If the Jews would have seen this and kept the momentum which was in that day, the Jews as a nation would have been in a different place than where they are today. A lot of darkness has manifested in the centuries in the Jewish environment. Black magic, black Kabbalah, child sacrifices, blood ugly things. There, these are, I'm not talking about now an, like an anti-Semitic person or something. These are things very well known scholarly in Jewish scholarship, by the Jewish scholarship in themselves. You know, it's not... Uh, a lot of other and other and other things have happened. All sorts of bizarre sects like the Sabbateans, the Frankists, the, you know, all sorts of political ugly movements derived from these, like some of the Zionistic tenets and others, you know, a lot of terrible things came if they, these people would have stayed with Jesus like they were on that Sunday, because apparently it was a Sunday, when Jesus came into Jerusalem and he was executed on Friday already, if the Jews would have not given up on Jesus, like they were so devoted to him at this time, the history would have been very, very different. But, so they say, why are you untying our colt? And they reply, the Lord needs it. And there is no comment. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. So they put like he didn't have a saddle. So he was riding directly on the back of the colt with some cloth put there as it is characteristic in many primitive places. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. Not only that Jesus was on a donkey with a, with a cloth on the back of the donkey, but for the other people, they were throwing the cloaks in front of the donkey. The donkey was not walking on dirt. The, don the donkey was walking on cloth. This being a reverence which was due to the kings. But even the temporary king, Herod or whatever the king was called at that time, he didn't receive such honors from people. No, This was something which was done for King David for King Solomon, for it was something which was done for the great religious kings who were like both prophets and kings. They represented God both in the spiritual power and in the temporal power. So Jesus, like things are getting really big because now things can become easily political. This one spark and the dynamite, the barrel of gunpowder will explode. Like now, the biggest prophet that people have heard about in the last two, three years, he is coming to Jerusalem and he is coming with a big retinue, which increases day after day. And now he is coming in force. And he's showing, as he says, go and get me the donkey, which is never ridden. Bring him to me. No, they put a cloak. He sits on the donkey. 
No, he could have said, come on, man, I can just walk. You know, it's like, uh, don't, you know, I want to be modest. Not at this time. At this time, Jesus had to show, had to give, to stretch out a hand, to say, if you want, this will be for you. This is what I'm offering, you know, that I'm your king. And then the kingdom of God will be here with such a king. No, I will... I will evolve you in the next five years as much as the whole planet would have evolved in 5,000 years. You know, I will just transform everything because the grace is here with me. And people are throwing their cloaks on the ground and the donkey is walking on those. No, like the king is coming. The king of the kings is coming. Something that you've never... The new David... The prophet David is reincarnated and he's coming. And there were many, many people who were doing this. You know, it's obvious there was not just two cloaks which two of the apostles had thrown there. No, it was like in Tibet when they do prostrations for 10 kilometers, you know. There was like non-stop, it was a huge thing. A wave, a tsunami was rising here. The energy is amazing. So, there was no opposition from the masters of the cult. They said the Lord needs it. Like, whoa. You know, they were not some stubborn assholes who said, hey, yeah, yeah, the Lord should pay 10 shekels or something like this, you know, because it's our donkey. You know, they just gave in immediately. We are not told about any opposition. Yeah. And they brought it to Jesus. They thought he, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, so now we are in East Jerusalem, we are basically entering Jerusalem, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Like the energy was so big that the disciples, who five days later they will run like rats and hide in the dark, and they will say, I have never known Jesus. Bunch of pussies, you know. I'm not saying, I'm not more brave than them. I would have probably run twice as bad as them if I would have been in those circumstances. I'm not trying to put them down, but I'm trying to say that given the size of the event, the same people who now are going inflated, they ran away like pussies, like cowards, like rats. And they hid in the dark. Just five days later. And now they go around and they praise God. And they said, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. This is from the Psalms. This is from David. They are singing something which Jerusalem had not seen for 500 years. No, it was like, whoa, the new David. Obviously here you can see the psychology of the crowds. That these people, they had a tsunami. There was a psychic tsunami coming. And these people were manipulated. And five days later, when they were arresting Jesus and condemning him, suddenly the wave was not there. This is how people are. People ride on a tsunami. You know, We asked many people who came to the school and said, oh, sorry, you know, we want to study with the school. And we told them, what did you do in 2018? You know, when the events were. And they said, you know, we got carried on and we didn't think too much. That's exactly what I'm talking about. 
people live in a sort of collective hypnosis. You can see, you know, there is a vaccine which is not known if it's safe because it's not tested properly. You know, it's not clinically tested. It doesn't have three, five years of clinical testing. There is a disease which is controversial in many, many, many ways. And people are like begging, some and some people are begging to be vaccinated. They say, I was there and there were no more vaccines, maybe next week. You know? Couldn't they give you some cyanide? No, maybe they had a pill of cyanide, you know, instead of, like, it would be quickly, it would be going really quickly. You know, and say, you're begging for it. No? It's really insane, you know, because this is the, the herd mentality. Once the herd mentality is started, it's incredible. It's incredible. Here, the herd mentality was for Jesus. Like people were having a moment of, you know, like the manic depressive people. One day they are depressive, but now they are manic. They were like, yay, long live Jesus. Look what events where the king is coming on a donkey and people are spreading their coats on the road and so on. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the... Five days later, he was not a blessed king anymore. They were running away and saying, I never met that guy. I don't know who that guy was. You know, like where is the blessed king who come in the name of the Lord? Cowards. But it's the instability. That's what I'm saying. How many people have a center? How many people are themselves? How many people have a spine? How many people dare to go against the current? Incredible. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, from the Psalms again, and then peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Gloria in excelsis Deo, as we sing in that Albignoni song. Glory in the highest. No. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Like some people, for some people who were not liking Jesus, they didn't get care. Like this was a slap in the face. Like this guy whom we contested and who is very controversial and often he insulted us and told us that our spiritual work is not good enough and da 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 and we went for him and we spoke against him and so on. Suddenly this hippie is coming and now he's coming like a king for God's sake. He does a little bit more and the crowd will say, Neil, this is our king. You know, And like what are you going to do? And what will we do about the Romans, which has a further problem? Because even if we have a king and we say, okay, our king is not Herod, it's Jesus. But the decision belongs to the Romans. We don't have the freedom to do whatever we So these people were manipuristic and like, you know, hey, hey, ho, 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 ho. You know, this is just a bunch of hippies who is out of control. They smoke too much ganja or whatever they did. And now they are going around and say, glory, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Like, are you nuts? And these Phariseans who are more manipuristic, they are the part of the leaders, they said to Jesus' teacher, like, don't let them go so far. Like, now they are a little bit more and they say, you are the king and everything. You know, like, this is out of control. This is going out of control. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. 
Like Jesus had released it. This was the moment which was in the scriptures. You know, he was showing that it's possible. But it took that people should vote for him. And people did not when the time had come. No. So he said, if I don't, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Because he basically says, that's the truth. They tell the truth. And if you stop people from telling the truth, the nature itself will start crying out, shouting. You know, it's like you can't stop it. This is the overwhelming evidence. Until now, Jesus had never shown any, and never shown any sign of temporal power coming on a donkey and people putting coats in front. And he's behaving suddenly like King David or something like that. Haven't seen that before. Like he accepted that people respected him and said, Rabbi, Rabbi, what shall we do about this and that? Like he was a teacher. But now this is suddenly, it's like gasoline over fire. You know, suddenly it flares up. It's something much bigger. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. Like he wailed, you know, he said, woe to this and that. And said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. (coughs) So he said, if you only knew what could bring you peace. Because even in those days, there was no peace with the Romans and with everything else. And until today, there is no peace. So he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. He knows that it's not going to go through, but there is a sample. There is an appetizer. No, like, look, it could be like this. The energy is there. People are crying. The king entered on a dong, you know. Things could be like paradise. Just keep it on. Keep it on. Don't look to the left. Don't look to the right. Keep it on. Stay with this energy. Stay with it. The days will come upon you where your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. He said what basically was happening. The Jews made a rebellion around the year 70 and then the Romans got so pissed off they raised out the temple until now the Jews are fighting to rebuild the temple of Solomon in the place where it was. But the temple, meanwhile, has been occupied by a mosque because 700 years later, Islam came strong and they built a mosque there, and the Al-Aqsa or whatever it's called. And of course, now you cannot demolish the mosque and build, rebuild the temple of Solomon, although the Zionists and the people who are fanatic religious, that's exactly what they want to do. 
to demolish the mosque and rebuild the temple because they said, hey, the temple was here, you know. It's just the fucking Romans. There was a glitch. Please make sure that all equipments are working because usually these glitches are killing the functioning of electronics. Like, for example, is there still internet connection or did the router... Okay, if you notice something, tell me, because usually the router takes a minute or two to reboot. Yes. Yes. So Jesus is making a very apocalyptic prediction. He is predicting and he's telling basically to the Jews, if you would have stayed like this, recognized me, made me the new David, what would have happened? But like this, because he knows he will be rejected, he said basically God came to you with me, and you said, no, no, this guy is not good enough. We want some, we want Sabatai Levi or whoever. Some, there was some guy who pretended he was the Messiah in the 18th century or something like this, called Sabatai and whatever. And, uh, no? and then he makes a prediction, which is bitter. He says, the days will come when you, upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you, like they will surround you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. The same, this happened also in Masada, right? In the very famous where they were encircled and they even died. No? They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Jesus said that on Sunday. There were still five days until Friday. And he said it. No? Like he was coming in full regalia, you know, with this momentum. The moment was amazing. And nevertheless, he knew that this was not going through. And he woed for Jerusalem. He said, Jerusalem will have a fate. Then he entered the temple area. So now he is in the old city. Now he is in the downtown. He entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. This is another event. It is described more colorfully in other Gospels. He entered the temple and the first thing which he did, he didn't like that they were making trade in front of the temple. No? And he said, it is written... He said to them, My house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. He is a bit rough, but he enters with this royal presence, came on a donkey and people put cloaks in front of him. His first step is to go to the temple because God comes first, always. And as he goes to the temple, he is displeased by the trade associated to the temple. Ultimately, 
he's not asking for much. He's simply saying, put this thing next street. Move it just a hundred meters from here. People who want to buy or sell something, they can move their ass for 50 meters or 100 meters. They will go and buy their lambs or whatever they have to buy, and they will come back. But keep the temple separate from this. I have been and seen trade in many Buddhist temples, Hindu temples, Christian monasteries, holy places, and others. You know, I, I haven't been in many other places of Islam or others. And you always see that there is a lot of trade happening around. That the whole, those places, half of it, is that they are commercial places. They sell white shirts, white trousers, malas, incense, this, that, you know. People are more wherever. You go to the big Buddha in Kosamui, it's the same. There is the big Buddha, but then besides that there is a whole market around it. And people are excited by the market. This is the unfortunate truth, you know. So Jesus knows the human soul. And he says, my house will be a house of prayer. You know, like you have to focus on the prayer, on the presence of God. Not on the fact of saying, oh, here I found plastic brooms. It's a long time since I wanted to buy a plastic broom. You know, it's like, take the plastic broom out of the market area. Move it 50, 100 meters to keep people's thoughts pure. To keep people's thoughts focused on one thing. and not saying, uh, dear, yeah, let's go, but as soon as we come out, remind me to buy a broom. You know? Like, I'm going to God as a favor that I'm doing to God. Then I'm coming out and I still want to buy the broom. And maybe a pair of white trousers. You know? It's like, it's not, it should, they shouldn't be mixed should be able to focus on the thing, you know. So, he says, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. The expression is exaggerated. Jesus is rough because he is sad of the impurity. He exaggerates on purpose. Of course, wherever there is trade, there is a commercial addition. And in a temple, in a hot area, you expect to pay two times more. You know, you go and buy a durian in a touristy place like Samui or Pangan, it costs something. You go and buy the same durian in a village somewhere in Thailand where there are no farangs, it costs half or one third of that price. You know, it's, That's exactly what would happen. So he says a den of robbers, like there is theft, Here the trade is preposterous trade. It is scandalous trade. It is trade with a very big margin of profit. It's not honest trade that you bought a lamb for five shekels or minas and you are selling it for six so that you make a little bit of profit. No, you are selling it for 15 because it's in the temple and people say, eh, why should I go? And so it's right here. Okay, give some more money. It doesn't matter. No? But that's theft indirectly because it relies on people's weakness. It relies on the fact that people are not strong enough to say, no man, come on man, I'm not going to pay 15 for you. No, you just go on the outskirts of Jerusalem and we, you find it for six minas. You know? And then we come tomorrow. 
yeah, but why come back tomorrow? I'm lazy, I'm tired, it's hot outside, you know. Okay, give 15 and let it be, you know. But that 15 doesn't go to God. It's not a donation to the temple. That, that 15 goes to the merchant. And maybe the merchant has a deal with the priests to be allowed to sell in that place, and then the priest is pocketing 10% of that also as a sort of rental for the place. So none of it is really going to God. No? It's not a donation to the temple. It's dirty money. It's not clean. No? So Jesus is rough, but he understands. He said, you've made it into a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple. That that's the week. No? It happened for the next four days. But the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Like now, it was face off. It was frontal confrontation. This Jesus, he could preach whatever he wanted when he was on the Sea of Galilee. When he was in Nazareth, he could preach his crazy stuff. But here, he was with the high priests, with the high scribes, almost face to face. He goes in the temple where they were the greatest authorities. But he was a rabbi. He was considered to be a teacher. And then he had the right to stay there and preach. And now the confrontation was painful. Because he was disagreeing. He was a Puritan. He was a fundamentalist. He was not making compromise. And on top of it, he was telling them that they were not good enough. Which again was an act of Puritanism in this way. So they were trying to kill him. There was already like, oh, if this guy would just die, fall down and start vomiting blood or something like this, we would be happy. You know, like they were very black. This going black is a typical Manipura thing in this way. When Manipura gets offended, it wants to go the full monte the other way around. So, yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. Like there were a lot of people around who listened to him. They said, this guy is right. Wow. No? And then there were like 100 people who liked him. There were 50 people who hated him. How could they kill him in front of everybody? Like things could not be done so simple. Like we don't like this guy, stone him to death or something like this. You couldn't argue with Jesus. Every time when they tried to argue with him, he gave absolutely genius answers to them. No, Like let the one who has no sin cast the first stone. No, And other genius remarks, they knew. This guy had an eloquence. They could not beat him in a dialogue. So they couldn't argue with him. They were just secretly hating him and wished for him to die. But there was no way yet. Those days are the days of God. They were the days of Jesus. Like Jesus had been given that time to make his case. To really say his final message. What will be, 
will be. So, this is how Jesus entered Jerusalem. This is called in common Christian language, the Palm Sunday. The Sunday before the Easter, because on that Sunday he entered, people were taken by a mysterious wave of enthusiasm. It's like the Holy Spirit hypnotized half of the city. They came with him. Some Pharisees, they tried to say, ho, 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 what the heck is this? But they were overwhelmed. They were kind of rolled out of the way by this tsunami. Jesus went to the temple. And then, of course, that's where he was, you know, because he was acting as God. And they say, Every day he was teaching at the temple. But the chief priests and the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the scribes and the others, the leaders among the people, they were trying to kill him. Because they suddenly lost their privileges. There was a new honcho in town. There was a new boss in town. And suddenly all their privileges were revoked. And thus, they couldn't take that. This is exactly the Manipura thing. No, like, we were... And then they, directly, the text says, they were trying to kill him. They just didn't know how, because there were too many people around who liked Jesus. And you you cannot fight against the mob. The mob is a very dangerous and big force. And you cannot fight with the crowds. So they had to find another way, which of course they did. With this we have finished the chapter 19 and I'm not going to continue today. There is, There are again four chapters or five, I don't remember as far as I'm concerned, which describe what happened further in this week and then of course the tragic events, the formidable events at the same time, which were exactly the final fulfillment of the mission of Jesus. So let us stop here for tonight. A lot of things were in balance in those days and the teachings of Jesus are so wonderful, so bright, so amazing and at the same time so human because as you can see they take into account people, the normal humanity, the normal norms the, the average norms of the human beings. Enough for tonight. Thank you all. I will continue because I definitely hope that this season, this year, I'm going to finish with the Gospel of Luke and will be able to draw some more conclusions for the practice, yoga, tantra, and spirituality. Enough for today.